Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. A few years ago, this was uh, January or so, late January of 2016. So the 2015 NFL season, the wild card round of the playoffs, my Houston Texans had defied all odds and won AFC South division and secured a playoff spot, and we even managed to host a home game in the first round against the Kansas City Chiefs. And we were excited. We had just recently moved to Maryland. We had moved here in August of the previous year. And so in a way, we thought the Texans are doing this just for us. So that as if to welcome us into our new home, that they decided they would go ahead and and win some games and win the division and make it to the playoffs. So they'd be on national television. I don't get to see the Texans all that often up here. So they had a nationally televised game prime time, wild card round of the playoffs, hosting the Chiefs. It was exciting. We were primed for victory. And opening kickoff came. The Chiefs elected to receive, and so the Texans kicked off the ball, and Tyreek Hill returned the opening kickoff like 95 yards or something for a touchdown. Opening kickoff of the game. And we just never recovered. It was the wind went all the way out of the sails, and the morale was destroyed, and the team just couldn't. They went on to uh, Brian Hoyer, I think was the quarterback that year. He threw like four or five interceptions. It was a blowout. In fact, it was a shutout. 30-0 to was the final score. With so much hope and energy and positivity and, and the stage set for victory and joy and celebration, The letdown was substantial for those of us who cared. That's a little bit what 1 Samuel 13 feels like. We've gotten to meet this new king. In chapter 11, uh, Israel's new king has fought valiantly against the Ammonites, and he rescued the helpless Israelites from their hand. In chapter 12, Samuel has led the people in covenant renewal, reminding them of God's covenant with them and his promises to bless their obedience. And it looks like that they're ready to go. Everything is going so well. And then chapter 13 happens. Then the kickoff. So the passage, the chapter is is structured as, as something like a Philistine sandwich. There's Philistines pressing in on the front end of the chapter. And then there's Philistines pressing in on the back end of the chapter. And then in the middle, verses 8 through 15, there's some drama that unfolds between Saul, the king, and Samuel, the prophet. And because of that structure and because of the nature of the content, that middle portion is the most important. It is the emphatic content of this chapter. So the the pressing Philistines provide the context for the drama that unfolds, and things don't go as we might hope. So the first few verses, we see the Philistines gathering. Let me read for you the first four verses uh, of chapter 13. 
Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Gilgal, you might remember, is the location of the covenant renewal ceremony that took place in chapter 12. Gilgal is a special place. And in fact, it's the place where when Saul was first anointed king in chapter 10, that uh, Samuel had told him to go. Go to Gilgal and wait for me seven days, and then I will come and tell you what to do. So Gilgal has special significance as a location uh, for the, 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 the leadership and spiritual identity of the people. So Saul is uh, at Gilgal, uh, and he's called the people to himself. Verse 1, there's, there's trouble in the transmission of the verse and the translation of the verse. When you read it in the ESV, it sounds very strange to think that he's only been king for two years, uh, and things are going to go downhill very quickly here. Um, many of the earliest manuscripts don't even have this verse at all. Um, so, and places in Acts and others refer to Saul's reign as being 40 years. So we're not sure exactly what to make of this verse. Nobody knows exactly what to do with it. So everyone kind of goes, ah, that verse is hard. We'll just kind of keep moving. Um, so we know that Saul's reign was longer than only two years. Um, it may actually be very early in his reign. In fact, it kind of seems that way, just given the context of the story, uh, that this happens. Or it could be that the narrator here is, is sort of speaking almost metaphorically about the immaturity of Saul, as though he were only a two-year-old king. We're not sure exactly what to make of that, but it doesn't affect uh, the, what, what happens or, or the, the shape of the story in any way. So after that introduction, now we meet a guy named Jonathan, and there's no real introduction of him given in the text. It just says that Saul gathered 2,000 men to himself, in Michmash, and uh, Jonathan took a thousand men and went to Gebeah of Benjamin. And we learn at the end of the chapter that Jonathan is Saul's son. So we at least know that Saul is an old enough man to have fathered a son who is now capable of leading uh, an army on his own. And so Jonathan takes a portion of these men and goes one direction, and Saul takes uh, a portion of these men and goes another. And we have the detail as we, as we meet Jonathan. The first thing that we see Jonathan doing is fighting against the Philistines. It tells us in verse 3 uh, that he defeated the garrison of the Philistines. That is just a, a small group of uh, troops, of, of, of warriors of the Philistines, that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. So this is a bit like maybe kicking the hornet's nest. So he's fought and defeated this small garrison of the Philistines, this little outpost in Geba, and now all of the Philistines are learning that this has happened, and so they're not going to be too happy about that. In fact, the press release, the formal press release from Saul, 
who, of course, takes credit for the defeat of the garrison, right? All Israel heard it said that Saul has defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Well, it wasn't really Saul, but when you're the king, you're in charge of the press, you get to make the announcement however you want. So Saul takes credit for the defeat of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. So the Philistines are none too happy about Jonathan, or Saul, kicking the hornet's nest, messing with their garrison. And so the Philistines begin to respond. They begin to press in. The clouds, as it were, are gathering. Look at verses 5 through 7, and we'll see what comes next. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand from the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So the Philistines are pressing in. The Philistines are gathering, and it is a large multitude. Verse 5 probably reflects another one of these kind of textual variants or or translation errors as it says that they had 30,000 chariots. That seems an unrealistically high number. Um, In fact, some of the manuscripts say 3,000 chariots, which is much more believable. So that's probably accurate. But the point is, this is a whole lot of Philistines, and they got a whole lot of firepower. There's chariots and armies and weapons, and they are all gathering together now at Michmash, which is where Saul had been. Saul was at Michmash when Jonathan attacked the garrison, and then they moved to Gilgal. And so now the Philistines have begun gathering as if they're following them in Michmash. And so they are collecting and getting ready to fight back. And the people of Israel, aware of the disparity of military strength. Remember, the men of Israel here are only numbered at 3,000. Begin hiding in holes and caves and tombs and wells, and some of them even go across the Jordan as far away as they can possibly get. They are out of their minds afraid. Get us out of here, right? Really, it shouldn't matter. If we remember the story as we've seen it unfold, if we remember the character and promises of Yahweh, they have Yahweh on their side, right? And he's just reminded them in chapter 12 of his covenant promises. Obey me, and it will go well for you and your king. All they have to do is go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel, and he'll tell Saul what to do next. No problem, right? That's how maybe it should go. But that's not exactly how it goes. So we have the Israelites hiding in holes and caves and tombs. And Saul indeed goes, has gone to Gilgal and is waiting for Samuel. Apparently that command back in chapter 10, when he had just anointed Saul to go to Gilgal and wait seven days and then I'll come, make sacrifices, tell you what to do, was something of a, a custom. Saul was, uh, was uh, expected to go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel to bring God's word to him. And tell him what he would do. 
So the drama between Saul and Samuel unfolds in verses 8 through 15. And let me read these verses for you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll unpack these together. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Saul's impatience is understandable. If you just use your imagination a little bit and put yourself in his shoes, you can understand why he acted the way that he did. His situation is desperate. His army is dwindling by desertion. They are running away and hiding. The Philistines are closing in. In fact, as far as he knows, they might attack at any moment. He has waited at least almost the designated seven days, right, for Samuel, and Samuel isn't showing up. So at some level, it makes sense for Saul to feel this pressure and, and be tempted toward fear, and in that fear and under that pressure, be tempted to shortcut, to, to, to cut corners on God's commands to him. But understandable though it is, his response is not acceptable. God does not look permissibly or leniently on Saul's disobedience. Why? I think it's because Saul's willingness to cut corners and to violate the word of God when strict obedience is inconvenient reveals something about his heart. He's already forgotten or rather rejected his place under the authority of God. I'm the king after all. I get to do what I want, right? You remember in the Lion King, Simba as a young cub had this attitude about growing up to be king where it would just be anything he, gets, he wants to do, he can do exactly as he pleases. He was talking with his father Mufasa one time looking out over the kingdom and Mufasa said, Simba, there's more to being king than just getting your way all the time. And Simba went, there's more? Like, that's all he can imagine. Being king means I get to do whatever I please, right? The whole universe is at my disposal and my command. And maybe Saul has a bit too much Simba in his view of the kingship. And he's forgotten 
that God installed him for a very specific purpose. And under the authority of God by the word of his prophet Samuel. And he gave him the job to fight against the enemies of Israel. He has gotten a bit big for his britches, it seems. In the 16th century, James VI of Scotland uh, had a habit when he would go to church of rudely speaking with some of his friends and people that were there while the preaching was going on. So somebody was, uh, was a pastor was up preaching, and he would just be up in a gallery chatting away, just disrespectfully disregarding what was going on. On one occasion, he was uh, at a church where Robert Bruce was preaching, and Robert Bruce noticed that, the, that King James was, was chattering during his sermon, and so he stopped for a moment and waited, and the king fell silent. And so then Robert Bruce resumed and began preaching again. And so did King James. He just kept on talking. And so Robert Bruce stopped and waited, and the king fell silent again. And so he began preaching. And on the third time that King James committed this offense, Bruce turned to James and addressed him directly. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all petty kings of the earth to be silent. (laughs) He said that uh, to the king of Scotland and then just continued preaching God's word. So Saul perhaps could have used something of that kind of reminder here, and indeed that is what Samuel gives him. Samuel rebukes him strongly. He asks him, what have you done? When he first arrives, Samuel says, what have you done? And look at his reply in verse 12. He says, or excuse me, verse 11. When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I said to myself, uh, so I forced myself and offered the offering. So he begins listing all of the reasons that he disobeyed the command. Reasons go by another name, sometimes excuses. Saul's response is full of excuses. Let's not miss an opportunity here to learn something about how we ought to respond to rebuke, to challenge If we use our imaginations, as I said, you can certainly appreciate Saul's predicament. And maybe we'd be inclined not to give him such a hard time, right? Cut him some slack. Well, he did wait almost seven days, and the Philistines were closing in, right? We could understand his his armies dwindling by the moment. And indeed, isn't that how we treat our own slips and stumbles into sin so often? Well, if you only knew my situation, you'd understand why I did what I did. It might have looked like gossiping, but really I was just offering a prayer request for someone who's having a hard time. Or sure, I sought out forbidden images on the internet, but do you know how hard my week had been or how long I had resisted temptation before I gave in this time? Or yeah, I spewed words of bitter poison at my wife and kids this week, but I had such a long day. It was down to my last nerve, right? We have endless lists of excuses for why we fall into sin. Brothers and sisters, when we're confronted 
with our sin. By the word of God, by the familiar prick of conscience, or by a concerned brother or sister in Christ, let's drop the defenses. Forget the excuses and turn to Christ in humble confession. Remember the good news of 1 John 1.9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because the gospel is true, repentance is always met with mercy. So let's learn by Saul's example not to fall into the trap of excuses and explanations and justifications for our sin. And let's simply fight it. Let's humbly accept our responsibility and seek to grow in gospel grace. So at any rate, Samuel's response, really Yahweh's response, to Saul's disobedience is devastating. Look in verse 13, he says, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now... Your kingdom shall not continue. Now, please note, he does not remove Saul from the office of king. He does not say, you're done, go back home. What he's doing here is saying, this is the end of your dynasty, as it were. You will not pass on the kingship to your sons and grandsons. Your dynasty ends with you. Because of your disobedience, to the voice of God through the prophet, you will not continue in your kingdom when your role is up. And we get here a glimpse of what God is doing already, as always before. When one leader or system of leadership is failing, God is quietly at work building the new generation raising up the next leader, just as he did with Samuel under the old leadership of Eli and his wicked sons. He raised Samuel up to lead the people of Israel. And now we have, as Saul's kingship is declining, we see this glimpse in verse 14 of what God is doing. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, which is the very same phrase that he had used of Saul prince over my people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He's speaking, of course, about a shepherd named David, but this isn't his story just yet, so we won't focus there. The kingdom of Saul will come to an abrupt end. It will not continue. This is God's just and righteous judgment for sin. He is right and good to discipline Saul in this way. But it is, to be sure, a hard word. And after Samuel delivers this hard word, he leaves. There's no further instruction given. He says, the kingdom will be removed from you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. He just left. Remember, Saul was supposed to be waiting for Samuel to come and give him instructions on what to do next. Well, no instructions come. He rebukes him. He rejects his kingdom, and he leaves. And so now there is Saul alone with about 600 guys left of his 3,000-member army, the rest of them hiding in holes and caves. And he goes to Gebeah. 
to get ready to fight the Philistines, which is just a pitifully desperate, helpless situation. And so the, the Philistine sandwich concludes with the Philistines on the march at the end of this chapter, verses 16 to 23. They gathered at Michmash before, and now they are moving. Look at verse 16. Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. We don't need to get too much into the geography details there. The point here is that the Philistine armies are surrounding. They are breaking up into companies and encamping themselves prepared to do battle to converge upon the 600 remaining guys of Israel and crush them. And the situation gets even worse in the last few verses because we realize that the the Israelites are woefully underprepared, not just in terms of their number, but in their tools. Look at verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. In other words, they don't even have the technology to make basic farming tools. They depended on the Philistine blacksmiths to even have sickles and, and plowshares that they needed to do their basic farming work. The Philistines have a monopoly on the, 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 I guess, the kind of metal, probably iron, needed to make these tools and obviously to make weapons of warfare. And the Philistines said, we're not going to sell the Hebrews weapons because we don't want them to use them to fight against us. And so the Israelites are without weapons. Look at verse 22. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. And so the chapter ends with the people waiting, surrounded and weaponless, without a word from God. This is not where the people of God want to find themselves. Surrounded by their enemies, without weapons to fight with, and without even the blessing or instruction of God. From his word. And so you could almost see the to be continued words show up at the bottom of the screen here. What's going to happen to our heroes next, right? We'll have to wait until next week to see how that story unfolds. But I want us to pause and look beneath the surface of this text a little bit to see, I think, some, some important uh, and powerful images that are here for us to see. Specifically, focusing on the the drama between Saul and Samuel and Saul's disobedience and Samuel's rebuke. I think Saul here is a bit like Adam. I don't know if the, the story itself reminded you at any point of the narrative of Adam in the garden with the fruit and God pursuing. So... Saul is something of a representative for the people of Israel, right? He's their king. He's the one that leads the way. He is supposed to hear the word of God through the prophet and then lead the people. So in that way, he sort of stands between God and the people. 
And Adam was a representative of all humanity as the first human being and the one who was entrusted with dominion over the creation and bearing the image of God. Adam was the representative for human beings, just as Saul was a sort of representative for Israel. Saul is given an express command, isn't he? Wait at Gilgal, and I'll tell you what to do. Adam had been given an express command. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. Saul grew impatient and forced himself to disobey, to use his own language, just as Adam in the garden had forced himself, as it were, to disobey the voice of God and to listen to the distorted truth from the serpent. Saul plays this little blame-shifting game, doesn't he? When Samuel says, what have you done? Saul starts pointing the finger at everybody else. Well, the people were all running away. And, and you, points at Samuel, you didn't come on time. Right? And the Philistines, they were pressing in. So what was I supposed to do? That's a little bit like Adam. When God says, what have you done? Which is exactly how Samuel asked. Adam says to God, well, the, the, the woman that, that you gave me, she, she gave the fruit to me and, and I ate. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pattern. There's an echo of the failure of Adam in the garden to obey God and thus represent humanity faithfully in Saul's disobedience to God at Gilgal. He did not wait for the word of the Lord, and he went ahead and offered the sacrifices in an unlawful and unauthorized way. And I think the truth that this screams over us as we read it is we need a new representative. Adam has failed us. Saul has failed the people of Israel as their representative. And in the gaping hole left by Saul's disobedience, if you look closely enough, you can see the shape of a second better representative. One who, from the vantage point of Samuel's first audience, was yet to come but who from our vantage point has already walked the earth with our humanity on his shoulders and succeeded for us where Adam and Saul had both so miserably failed. So you see, as, just as Saul is a bit like Adam, the first Adam, Jesus is the better Saul. Jesus is the better Adam. You see, he obeys his will perfectly. Throughout the Gospel of John, he speaks over and over. I only speak what the Father gives me to speak. I only do what the Father tells me to do. The whole narrative of the cross as it unfolds in John's Gospel is all about the sovereign plan of God the Father unfolding and Jesus submitting himself to that plan. He was, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2.8, obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection from the dead defeated the enemies of God's people once and for all. Sin, death, and the devil were decisively overcome at the cross. But you see, his death was only effective for us and our salvation because he had lived obediently in our place. If Jesus merely had to die, then there was no reason for God to stop the Herod's slaughter of toddlers, of Hebrew toddlers. Jesus could have died as a toddler and succeeded in saving 
his people. But you see, he had to live obediently in our place. It's gloriously true that Jesus Christ died for us, but it's equally necessary and glorious that he lived for us. As he himself said, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Praise God. He fulfilled the law of God by living under it in perfect obedience. So that when he offered himself on the cross, he was qualified to be an atoning sacrifice for the sins of everyone who would call upon him for salvation. For your sins and for mine. So Adam was tempted by the serpent in the garden, and he buckled, he gave in, he failed. Saul was tempted at Gilgal by the pressures surrounding him and by the desertion of his armies to disobey the word of God, and he buckled. He grew impatient, and he did his own thing. He cut corners, he failed. When Jesus found himself in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He withstood at every turn. For 40 days and 40 nights, it tells us that he was tempted by the devil who came to him with all manner of false assurances. And if you'll just do this, I'll give you everything. If you'll just turn the stone into bread, right? He just continues to tempt Jesus to break the rules, to cut corners, just like Adam had done, just like Saul had done. But Jesus withstood. Jesus said, it is written. And with the word of God, he confronted the temptation of the devil. And when Jesus found himself in another garden, perhaps tempted to call the whole thing quits, to throw in the towel regarding the cross, the night of his arrest and the night before his crucifixion, he pleaded with God, if there's any other way, if it's possible, please let this cup pass from me. But he submitted himself to the will of God. And he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. Friends, we need a new representative, and we have one in Jesus Christ. He took up obedience where we had failed. And he took our sins to a cross and suffered our penalty in our place. And he rose from the grave to defeat death and the devil forever for all who would call upon his name. Just call upon his name. Trust in him. And you're his forever. Let's pray together.